Cincy Reformed Podcast. My name is Zach Wise. I'm here with my co-pastor Brandon Burks. We are pastors of Westside Reformed Church and uh, this week we're going to be continuing a series that we began on the views of Roman Catholicism and how those uh, views differ from the uh, Reformed tradition or as we might call it the Reformed Catholic tradition. And today what we're going to be doing is thinking about the role of faith in justification this is at the heart of the um, Protestant-Roman-Catholic divide that occurred in the 16th century at the Protestant Reformation. And so we're going to be taking that up today, building off the um, d- distinction we talked about last week between our views of authority and the uh, Christian life. So just to uh, clarify some terms as we get started here, when we say faith, and we'll get into this a little bit more in depth later, But when we, within the Reformed tradition, say the word faith, what we mean is uh, confidence. We mean trust. We mean belief. And when we speak about it in that biblical sense, then we are speaking of something that is um, where the the subject of faith has knowledge, uh, agrees with that knowledge, and trusts in the uh, promise of God and the grace of God. So knowledge, assent, trust are oftentimes what we, what we speak about to uh, describe what we mean by faith. Um, the biblical synonym, as I mentioned, confidence or belief uh, can be used as well. And this is um, in distinction from where Rome often goes with uh, the, the term faith, where they, we would say, smuggle love into part of faith rather than love being the fruit of faith. We certainly believe that faith and love are intimately connected. However, faith is the root of love, and love is the a fruit of faith. So just to define that up front, kind of where we're coming from with this, and we're going to get into that in more detail in a second. Second thing to define for us is the term justification. We believe that justification is a, a forensic act. It is a, a judicial declaration, a verdict that God renders. And that verdict is received by faith alone. It is not um, achieved by faith working through love. It is um, received by the sinner as Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And we receive that by faith alone. And then that begins to lead to works of love and, and other sorts of good works. And so I want to define that up front for us. Uh, just to make sure we're on the same page as we get started. And so uh, let me pass it over now to Brandon, and maybe Brandon can talk to us a little bit about what the Roman Catholic perspective is on faith and uh, justification. So during the Reformation, as uh, Luther and uh, Calvin, others are are writing about and speaking about justification and challenging the the Roman Catholic view of this, uh, Rome had you know what was called a, a counter-reformation of sorts where they called a council, the Council of Trent, and they began to define uh, what, what they believe in distinction from the reformers. And so when you read uh, what was written at the Council of Trent, you can kind of begin to see um, where the dividing line is 
between the Roman Catholics and the and the Reformed. So here's a few statements from the Council of Trent that uh, really helped to shape our understanding of, of what Rome is is doing with with justification. So in, in one place, the Council of Trent said, If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, in the sense that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let him be anathema. That is, let him be eternally condemned, eternally damned. So he's saying, they're saying, if, 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 if you say that you're justified by faith alone, and you don't need anything else, any good work of love or anything else to kind of co-mingle and co-work at justification. Basically, they're saying if you are a Protestant and you believe in justification by faith alone, you are anathema, eternally damned. It's, uh, the Council of Trent goes on to say, if anyone says that men are justified either by the imputation of Christ's justice alone excluding the grace and charity poured into the hearts by the Holy Spirit and inheres in them, let him be anathema. So if you are uh, trusting and resting uh, on the grounds of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, the imputed uh, justice or righteousness uh, alone, it says, then um, again, you are anathema. The Council of Trent goes on to say, If anyone says that the good works of the justified man are the gifts of God in such a way that they are not also the good merit of the justified man himself, or that by the good works performed through the grace of God and the merit of Jesus Christ, the justified man does not truly merit eternal life, and the attainment of this eternal life, as well as the increase of glory, let him be anathema. So instead of saying that good works are the fruit of justification, they're wanting to say that um, they actually merit. There, there is a meritorious aspect to the good works. And so they're rejecting the Protestant view that good works merit nothing, good works are the fruit, that is being explicitly denied here. Another, another statement by Trent, when faith is active along with works, they increase in the very justice they have received through the grace of Christ and are further justified. As it is written, you see a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, James 2.24. So here in, in this um, article, uh, Trent uh, is saying that you can further your justification. You can be you know, somehow more justified, uh, which also su suggests that you can become less justified. So instead of a once-for-all declaration, a once-for-all verdict, now Rome has this kind of almost like a scale where you, you increase, you decrease, and they're trying to appeal to James 2.24, but James 2.24 is not speaking about this. James 2.24 is talking about vindication before man, uh, and, and, and it gives the example of Abraham, that his works vindicated him before man. It wasn't speaking about uh, a justification before, before God. In fact, when you read um, James 2.24, uh, the key, the the key part there in James two twenty four is to um, to look at how he's quoting uh, Genesis. He quotes Genesis twice, 
And noting how he quotes Genesis, quoting Genesis 22, quoting Genesis 15. Genesis 15, Abraham is justified before God by faith alone. Um, and then it talks about in, 20, in, in uh, Genesis 22 that he was vindicated before, before man, right? Because he, he um, carried out fruit according to, to his, his faith that justified him. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know why they would appeal to James 2.24 uh, to try to support that because that text doesn't, doesn't support that at all. Uh, bringing it also to um, the modern-day Catholic catechism, here's what Rome said. Christ instituted the sacrament of penance for all sinful members of the church, above all for those who, since baptism, have fallen into grave sin and have thus lost their baptism grace and wounded ecclesial communion. It is to them that the sacrament of penance offers a new possibility to convert and to recover the grace of justification. So for Rome, justification is almost like a, a leaky bucket of sorts, where you put grace in, it, it leaks out because you sin, you put more grace in, and you have to go through this kind of sacerdotal uh, sacrament of, of the church to kind of regain this uh, baptismal uh, justifying grace that's being lost. And that is just uh, in uh, total contradiction to uh, how, how the Apostle Paul, for example, um, speaks of these matters. And this is an important um, topic to kind of grapple with, because there are some who say, well, who cares? I mean, Protestants say you're justified by faith alone. The Roman Catholics say, well, it's faith plus works. Um, who cares at the end of the day? But this is, this is of, of utmost importance because in, in the Bible, you see this central question being asked, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be righteous before a holy God? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Roman Catholicism gives one answer, and the, the, the Protestants, the, the Reformed Church, has given a completely different answer. We believe that our answer is based upon the text of Scripture. And we believe that the Roman Catholic Church has, has erred in this. In fact, when the Council of Trent was giving these anathemas, saying, anathema, if you believe you're justified by faith alone, anathema, if you believe you're justified according to the imputed righteousness of Christ alone, anathema, if you believe that good works don't merit, what, what are they doing? The Reformers said they anathematized the very gospel of Jesus Christ itself. And so this is... At the heart of the issue, what must I do to be saved? They're giving a completely different answer than what the Apostle Paul gives. So, and they also connect this to, to, to purgatory as well. I mean, that's the whole purgatory structure because there's no, there's no assurance of salvation uh, because you, uh, you have this leaky bucket of sorts and you're putting grace in, it's leaking out. And you just never know how you stand before this holy God. And so you die and what do you have to do? You have to go into the purgatorial fires and you have to be purged and burned and cleansed. And, um, one priest was uh, describing uh, purgatory, and he described it like this. He said, purgatory is like if you were playing baseball in the backyard and you accidentally broke one of the windows to your father's uh, tool shed. And you go to your dad and you say, sorry, I broke your window with the baseball. And your dad said, I forgive you, but you're going to pay for every window that you've broken. 
And so he was saying, well, in the same way, God says, well, I forgive you when you sin, but you're going to pay for every single sin that you've ever committed in the fires of purgatory, and you're going to be purged, and, and so on. And so that totally, totally recalibrates the gospel. It totally recalibrates what Jesus did when Jesus on the cross said, it is finished. Uh, Roman Catholicism does not believe that it was finished in, in, a, in a way in which our sins were, were, were removed or taken away, but merely forgiveness was bought. Our sins were not at all removed. Um, and so in the Roman Catholic idea, we have to kind of, uh, I don't know, be half savior of ourselves. We are going to pay for our own sins. And again, where in the world is the gospel in that whole scheme of things where I'm going to go to purgatory for up to, I don't know, 100,000 million years to be purged? And, and then, of course, they, they kind of connected that with a financial thing where now if you have masses said um, on behalf of a, of a loved one, you can reduce time in purgatory. It, uh, of course, in the uh, Reformation era, it was connected with the indulgences if you bought an indulgence. Uh, it was told that in heaven there was a heavenly treasure chest, and the heavenly treasure chest was filled with these good works of the saints and Mary and so on, and the Pope had the key, and if you paid him money, then he would unlock the heavenly treasure chest, the treasury of merit, and dispense uh, this grace that would reduce time or perhaps free a loved one from, from purgatory. Again, uh, totally recalibrating the gospel according to Scripture and how the Reformed uh, Church has, has understood the gospel. So, kind of bringing this to the Reformed uh, understanding of justification, um, how has the Reformed and, and the Bible under, un, understood justification? Yeah, well, when we start thinking then about justification from the Protestant perspective, which includes Lutheranism, but we're talking here from the Reformed um, vantage point, that the, the justification that we're speaking of is, again, something where the righteousness is outside of us, not inside of us. That's really the key difference here between us and with Rome, where for Rome, as one of the um, dogma statements from Trent indicated, they're looking for an inherent righteousness, a righteousness within, which is why purgatory is necessary to create within you that righteousness that becomes your standing before God and to, to bring you up to that internal level that gives you entrance into, into glory. Whereas we're speaking about a righteousness outside of us. And for Rome, that ends up meaning that, that faith is not then defined as confidence. Faith is not then defined as something that uh, includes assurance because for, for Rome, if you're resting upon something inside of you, then you need to be left in a place of uncertainty, a place where you lack confidence because you need to do more and do more and do more. And only at the end of doing more could you maybe possibly hope to maybe eventually have some sort of confidence and assurance. Whereas for the Reformed um, and the, the Protestant perspective, we base and build our Christian life upon assurance this is uh, found within the Belgic Confession. I'll read here from Article 22. It uh, begins by speaking about, We believe that for us to acquire the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith that embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits and makes him its own. 
and no longer looks for anything apart from him. We skip down a little bit here then. It says, we do not mean properly speaking that it is faith itself that justifies us, for faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. But Jesus Christ is our righteousness, crediting to us all his merits and all the holy works he has done for us and in our place. And faith is the instrument that keeps us in communion with him and with all his benefits. When those benefits are made ours, they are more than enough to absolve us of our sins. And so right there you begin to see the, the legal dimension of justification, the, the legal forensic action of God uh, forgiving us and declaring that verdict for us, and that faith is that singular instrument that holds us in communion with Christ, who is our merit, and his merit is outside of us, credited uh, to us. Uh, then I'll read just a bit here from um, Article 23, the very next article in the Belgic Confession. And as it speaks about the obedience of Christ, which becomes ours when we believe, it says, That is enough to cover all our sins and to make us confident, freeing the conscience from the fear, dread, and terror of God's approach without doing what our first father Adam did, who trembled as he hid as he tried to cover himself with fig leaves. So the clear distinction, clear difference, I think, should be very notable here as we speak about faith as confidence. How can faith be confidence? Well, because it's resting upon Christ alone and in Christ's merits, not our own merits. And so therefore, when we think about coming before God, our conscience is freed, our conscience is cleansed. And this is what we see when we come to the pages of Holy Scripture. For example, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This peace is a subjective experience that we have because we know that we have been justified. It is done. We're not looking forward to some increase of justification in order to achieve peace later on after the fires of purgatory. But no, we have it now. And upon that, we build our Christian piety. Past tense. Mm -hmm, absolutely. Have been. From Galatians 2, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. From Galatians chapter 5, verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. So here, clearly, the person who does not think that Christ is enough cannot be said to be joined to him, but rather is cut off, is sent away, that such a one cannot be called a justified person who's going to be trying to present before God his own spiritual resume, his own good gifts, his own personal merits. No, Christ is enough. And that's what makes this whole thing um, such a, an important conversation because you know, he's saying if you think that your works 
are somehow mixing with faith or whatever else, and it's gonna and you're gonna be justified uh, according to that, then you are severed from Christ. This is a big deal. This is not a well, who cares? This is some sort of weird end times debate. No, this is a central debate about Christ and His gospel and how to be saved and how to um, have eternal life with Him. So this this is a, a huge deal. I think a couple more verses just to round this out for us. The next from Second Corinthians five verse twenty one. Where Paul writes, for our sake, he made him to be sin, says God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so he was not a sinner, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So there is this exchange that took place, the crediting of our sin to Christ. Now, he was not in himself a sinner. But it was credited to him, it was imputed to him. But then the other part of the exchange is that by being joined to Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us. It is credited to our account. Here as well from Romans chapter 5 verse 19, where the two Adams paradigm is being presented by Paul. For as by the one man's disobedience... The many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So, Brandon, what are some other thoughts we might have and reflections we might want to present our audience with uh, today about this doctrine of sola fide as we think about justification and that question of uh, how are we sta- how are we saved before God? How are we righteous before God? What must I do to be saved? The the knee-jerk reaction oftentimes when you're talking with a Roman Catholic and you're speaking about faith alone, uh, one of the first responses is, well, so you can just live however you want. So you can you don't have to do any good works. And, and they think that the sola fide that's presented by the Apostle Paul and others, um, they think that that will lead into an antinomianism, a lawlessness, where it'll just be uh, just immoral chaos. And, of course, that's not what we're saying. What we're, uh, we believe that uh, it is, it is the, the fruit of justification. Good works are the fruit. Heidelberg Catechism 64 says, It is impossible for those who are engrafted into Christ not to produce works of gratitude. It's an impossibility. You cannot be united to Christ and not produce works of gratitude. And so <clears throat> we would actually say that you know, um, good works are a necessary consequence, fruit, but never a meritorious root. It's never the foundation. It's always after. And the reason that's a big deal is because the Apostle Paul says if you try to smuggle in good works and make them the root or the foundation by which you uh, are justified, then you're severed from Christ and you've fallen away from grace and Christ is of no use to you. Read the book of Galatians, and I think it's very clear. Uh, So, um, Zach, any more reflections about the role of good works and justification and this charge of lawlessness? Yeah, I think that Jesus helps us greatly in John's Gospel when he speaks about, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. I think that that ordering of things is very important because what God has done for us is to first act graciously toward us and to grant us confidence and to, by, by giving us that verdict, by coming to us in condescending grace, 
he then creates a, a warmth in our hearts toward God. He, he does the work for us perfectly in order to inspire within us love for him. And by now loving the God whom we've actually hated beforehand, by loving the God that we were previously at war with, well, then we begin to see his lordship not as a threat to us. Because if his lordship were a threat to us, so to judge us and to condemn us, then we would not want to follow him. We would not want to honor him. We would hate him. We would fight against the one who is going to squash us. But God comes instead in the gospel and forgives us and justifies us. And he first shows his love toward us. Then that inspires in return our love for him, which is a confidence toward him. This is a belief in him, a rest in him. And then out of that flows um, works of gratitude, works of uh, good works that, that uh, conform to the law of God. I, I recall in, um, I believe it's in Luke's gospel, where uh, a woman came, comes to Jesus and um, he, he speaks about her that uh, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. And that is the way that we want to see yeah. ourselves in the Christian life. That we love God much and we love others much because first we know that we have been forgiven much. And that leads to a humble Christian life. That leads to a Christian life where the foundation of it is a forensic declaration. It's the, the, the knowledge, the confidence that we are first justified. And then we go out to love God and to love our neighbor uh, mm-hmm. with good works. Yeah, that's helpful because Rome often will mix justification, sanctification, kind of smuggle them in mm-hmm. together. They conflate uh, the two, don't they? Yeah, they just kind of conflate it where justification now grows and decreases. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, speaking of ordering, I, I love how Jesus also talked about how a good tree will bear good fruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, just love the ordering of that. A good tree will bear good fruit. He doesn't say bear good for fruit and then you'll turn yourself into a good tree. That would be legalism. That would be, um, be, be trying to change yourself by doing some... I mean, try, by meriting something with with works. Uh, He doesn't say that. He says a good tree will produce good works, but he also doesn't say be a good tree and you don't have to bear any fruit. That would be lawlessness. He says a good tree will bear good fruit. I think that that the ordering there is is, uh, important. Yeah, I think maybe a final thing, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but maybe to whet your appetites a little bit, that when we begin to put justification as a process and justification is the end of a life of piety plus the flames of purgatory plus indulgences and things you begin to see why rome has this system that really revolves around a priesthood and it revolves around various um, man-made sacraments that are then designed to increase that grace of justification in you and you're not looking back in time to the completed work of christ his perfect life, his obedient life, his sacrificial death as everything that you need. Rather, you begin to look inside yourself, you begin to look to a priesthood, you begin to look to a a mechanical sacrificial system to mechanically increase that grace within you. And so as we talk about the uh, Eucharist later on, the Mass, and how that differs from how we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you're going to begin to see how a lot of these things are tied together. A lot of people are going to look and recognize, especially within the evangelical world, they'll look and see there's a problem there within the Roman Catholic system of things and the Roman Catholic religion. We say, well, that's actually very much rooted in what they believe about justification. And so if you have some, some issues with that um, priestly nature 
of the uh, Roman hierarchy and the Roman system, well, that really gets down to authority and it comes down to that view on justification. These things are very much tied together. So I think maybe just to whet your appetite for some of the episodes that are, that are coming up. Uh, thanks for, for joining us. Uh, we are uh, Cincy Reform Podcast, a podcast that is sponsored by Westside Reform Church. You can visit us at westsidereform.org, and you can visit all of our podcasts uh, on cincyreform.org. Hope to see you next week.